I am not an expert. I've never published a book or taught a class, but I love quilting, and I love talking about quilting. I make a lot of mistakes, but I like to think that sometimes I learn from them and get just a little bit better. If hearing about someone else's goofs and mess-ups makes you feel better about yours, then I've done my job. Join me now as we talk about quilting for the rest of us. Hey, I'm Sandy, and I'm a quilter, and welcome to episode 112, that's 112, in which I talk size and scale with Jay. And I'm recording this part of this episode on Thursday, December 6, 2012. Um, My conversation with Jay was just a couple of days ago, so you're getting, you know, kind of bounced around in time a little bit. I hope it doesn't make you motion sick. Can you get motion sick in time travel? I don't know. Probably depends on what sci-fi channel show you're watching. All right, in this episode, I am going to, of course, begin with Creative Bites. I'm going to do just a very brief, actually non-quilty-related Sandy update, uh, because my conversation with Jay will take up the bulk of the episode, so I don't want to add a lot of other stuff. I have had a lot of quilty stuff going on, but I'll wait until the next episode to update you all on that. So Creative Bites for this week is a little bit more straightforward than last week's was. Um, As you may know, if this is your first time joining in, by the way, thank you very much for listening. I forgot to start with my thank yous. I should have done that. If this is your first episode that you're listening to, I've recently begun each episode with what I call Creative Bites or Sound Bites of Creativity. I want to start with a quote that was in a book that I reviewed a couple of episodes ago now, I think, when I talked about Gene Wells' intuitive color and design. In the foreword to that book, Betsy Rickles, who wrote the foreword, says, My Aunt Alice once told me that the most cherished friendship is not only one in which you enjoy time spent together, talking, sharing, and laughing, but also one in which you inspire each other, challenge each other, and find that you are taking creative journeys within yourself thanks to the influence of the other. And, you know, I I went back to that quote time and time again. I, I kind of stuck on it for a little while before I could move on and read the rest of the book. And it's it's rare that I actually find anything particularly meaningful in a foreword to a book. <laughs> I'm sorry if there's anybody out there who's ever written a foreword to a book. Um, usually I kind of skim them quick to move on to the rest of the book. But that just really stuck with me. And it made me think about the people that I surround myself with. I have friends, you know, I've got internet friends. I've got real person in life friends. And... Friends, different friends tend to serve different purposes in your life. I think you probably all can relate to that. You have, you know, if you're in a mood for one kind of thing, you tend to call one friend. If you're in a mood for something else, you call this other friend. In any case, what I've been thinking a lot about lately is whether, how I have surrounded myself with people who challenge me creatively. And I certainly have done that. I've got some friends that I've had for my entire life, BFF, BQF, Kate, um, who we've been friends for years in a variety of ways. And more recently in our friendship have um, shared this love of quilting and, and how we challenge each other in that regard creatively. There are other friends that are newer into my life that challenge me creatively. And, and uh, my friend Lori and I often tell, you know, say to each other, oh, I want to try this. Oh, yeah, I've always wanted to try that, too. And so we get together and we try these things. So it's really important in your own um, growth and your own acceptance of your creativity to surround yourself with people who will challenge you in that way. Now, what do I mean by the term 
challenge. Sometimes we define challenging something as being a negative thing. Oh, I'm going to challenge you on that. You know, I'm going to confront you. That's not what I mean by challenging. I mean somebody who will encourage you to step out, who will encourage you to take risks, who will help you grow and become more than what you are. We all have people that everything we hold up to them, oh, that's beautiful. Oh, that's great. And that's wonderful. We need that. (laughs) I'm not saying we don't need that. We do need that. But does that particularly challenge you? We also, however, have people in our lives who are the negative Nazis, who it doesn't matter what we show to them, they're going to point out something wrong with it. The people who we really consider our friends, there may be some people that just don't really get what we're doing. Even if they don't point out stuff that's wrong with what we've done, they may just not give us the response we're looking for. You may have a friend in your life that you will show something you've done and her response or his response every time is, yeah, that's nice. And you're disappointed because every single time you expect a different response. Or those people who are the negative Nancys. Um, If you keep showing them something and you keep getting a response that disappoints you, then maybe you need to just stop showing them the stuff. <laughs> you know, it, it, the as we all know, that quote unquote, the definition of crazy is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. If there are people that don't give you what you feel you need in terms of your you know responses to your quilting, assess whether or not you even need to be showing them your stuff. Now, that's not to say that if somebody gives you a response you don't like, that doesn't mean there isn't still something you can learn from that response. There's a difference here. And I trust that you all listening to this will know what the difference is. There are times I will show something to somebody and they'll say, you know what, you know, there's something, I kind of like it, but there's something that's not quite working. Well, I need to listen to that. But if every time I showed something to somebody, they just pointed out a problem with it, without it being a constructive issue, then eventually I'm I'm just going to say, you know what, I don't need to invite that person into that part of my life. I can be friends with them in another way. That doesn't mean they're a bad person. It does not mean they're a bad person. It doesn't mean you can't be friends with them. It just means maybe they're not the best supporter of your creative journey. So for this week's Creative Bites, I want you to consider who you have invited into your creative journey. Let's write it that way. Let's say, who are you surrounding yourself with who will challenge you creatively in a constructive way, not a negative way, not a beating you down way, but a constructive way, a building you up way, a way to help you become more than what you are now? Who are those creative friends? Who are those influences you want to invite into your life? For me, the other podcasters are, obviously. All of you who comment back and forth with me on my episodes, you're all part of that creative circle that I have engaged with. You are part of who challenged me creatively. And so I've really appreciated that. Um, Thank you for being a part of that. And, you know, again, I just want you to think about who is it in your own life? Who are you spending time with? Who are you sharing your quilty life with? Are they with you on the journey? Um, And if not, find somebody who can be on the journey. Because wouldn't it be wonderful if all of us could write about somebody what Betsy Rickles wrote about Gene Wells and what I'm sure Gene Wells feels about Betsy Rickles as well, that that a cherished friendship is one in which you inspire each other, challenge each other, and find that you are taking creative journeys within yourself thanks to the influence of the other. So that's your Creative Bites for the week. Assess 
your the people who are with you on your creative journey and surround yourself with people who will challenge you creatively. Okay, my Sandy update again, I'm not going to be talking about current projects. Um, and if you want to be updated, just go to my blog, I am posting regularly there, but I do have something that I will actually be talking about um, on a future episode. Just one quick, this is a personal update. My dog, my doofus, my Sammy is going in for surgery again on Monday. Yes, he has yet another tumor. Um, this one, <laughs> this one is the poor guy. It's on his little nose. Well, actually his big nose. I refer to him as having a bare nose. Um, it kind of looks like a big wart. We are keeping an eye on it. It's been there for a while. We had actually noticed it when he was having the other surgery for the other tumor he had removed back in October, I think it was. But we didn't want to put him through all that at once. So I was keeping an eye on it. And my husband and I were looking at it a few nights ago and said, you know, it really has gotten much bigger. It's clearly irritating him a little bit more now. So we're going to have it removed on Monday. And I'm not particularly worried about what the tumor may signify. I think it'll be the same as the last one, which was a benign, whatever it was called. It just means the poor guy's going to be back in a cone again <laughs> for a while. And uh, unfortunately, we now have Christmas decorations out. So I'm going to have to dog proof the house because that dog is like a bull in a china shop with that cone on his neck. Um, anyway, <laughs> so just, you know, keep Sammy in your in your thoughts on Monday. So that's my, my little Sandy update. And next week, I'll talk to you more about quilting. So before we go any further, I will turn us over now to the conversation I had with Jay. And then we will have some um, very brief listener comments. Although come to think of it, you know what, I'm going to hold those off until the next episode as well, just because my conversation with Jay was about 40 minutes long. So in the interest of keeping this under an hour, we'll do listener comments in total next week for my next episode. So here we go with no further ado, my conversation with Jay on size and scale. Okay, I'm talking with Jay again, and we're on to um, design. We're talking about size and scale today, right, Jay? Right. How are you doing, Sandy? I'm doing good. How are you doing? Good. Good. All right. How do you want to start us off? Well, size and scale are an element of design, so people can put it in the context of what we've talked about before. And I also want to say that size and scale are related terms, and you'll kind of get the idea when we talk about definitions, which is now. Size and scale are words that are used to describe the physical size that a shape or a form has in comparison to other shapes or lines within the design field. And when I say form, I really mean a shape on the page, like on the quilt, like a circle or a square or something like that, not the form as we talked about it in a previous episode. Okay, and, and for those who may be just coming into the series now, can you also um, do the glossary term of design field? Because that's a term we do use a lot, so let's redefine that as well. Um, well, in terms of a quilt, your design field is the space that you're using to create your piece. So if you are an art quilter, you might say, okay, I'm going to make a 24-inch square quilt. That 24-inch square where you build your work on is your design field. If you are a classic quilt maker and you are making 36 12-inch squares, when you put those together, 
you get a six by six design field. I mean, you might not want to make it six by six. You might want to make it some other configuration, but basically that six by six square of your 12 inch, made up of your 12 inch blocks is your design field. Okay, thank you for <laughs> taking us back in time a little bit from previous episodes, and now I think we're back up. So size and scale describe the physical size that a shape has in comparison with other shapes or lines within that design field that we just defined. Right, and it's really important to think about that last piece. The shape has in comparison to other shapes. So just keep that in your mind as we're talking because it's, it's important. And one example of that is when you look at gradation, so let's say we have 10 squares and the smallest one is 1 inch square and the largest one is 10 inches square. You can see the size and the scale because of the relationship of each square to each other. Another definition is the size of a work in relation to humans in addition to the size of the elements within the work in relation to each other. So when when I was thinking about this, I thought of buying fabric online. And I have this problem all the time. I don't really like to buy fabric online that much because it's hard to see the scale of the print. So I might buy a dot and think that I'm getting maybe quarter-inch dots on the background. And they the fabric comes in its pin dot, and that's not what I want. So the size of your piece, you you make sense of it in relation to yourself, as well as in relation to the other elements on the design field. So if I know how big my hand is, I can tell how big the scale of the fabric is. I also, the first thing that pops into my mind as well is thinking about miniature quilts versus you know, the the huge kind of wall mural quilts that we see that when you see a miniature quilt online, it's very hard to tell what size it actually is versus when you're standing in front of it because now you're comparing it to your own size. So, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And online, you can't tell what the size of a quilt is. And frankly, when I see the size, and there are a lot of people out there who are great. They say, this quilt is 105 by 97. And I'm thinking to myself, I have no idea how big that is. Right. <laughs> it's bigger than me because I'm 72 inches tall or how right. tall I am. But well, I don't know how big that is. The same thing is true when you talked about buying fabric online is, you know, even if they say this repeat is so many inches, I also have to run and get a ruler <laughs> and look at that. Okay, what? how much is that many inches and visualize it in person? Yeah, and it's very difficult even with the, the shops that put that little ruler on their on their fabric, it's still really hard until you see it in your hand, I think. I mean, other people might have a better visual acuity than I do, but anyway, that is, so think about size in relation to yourself and how you interact with size based on your own body. Our bodies are really good frames of reference because we know how big they are. And I don't mean, oh, I wear size 12 pants or whatever, but I mean my hand is this big, this big. When I look at my hand, it's size, not how many inches. So use your body. It's a great scale of reference. 
a great reference to scale. I remember a person um, teaching kind of rudimentary photography saying, you should always put a person in every scenic picture because then people can see, you know, can judge scale. I don't necessarily agree with that premise, but I do agree with the fact that, yes, the only way you really know how big a mountain is is if you see a person standing in front of it. Right. Well, you could take the picture without the person and then take the picture with the person. Right. And not put the person in your scrapbook, but you could say, you know, Joe, my cousin, was, you know, what inch (laughs) tall? Have it as reference. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Okay, but back to quilting. All right. So scale and proportion are related terms that both basically refer to size. Scale is essentially another word for size. Now, here we're getting back to not everybody agrees. I did not look these up in my Merriam-Webster College Dictionary, so you might not agree with me, but that is what Pentac and Lauer say. And large scale is a way of saying big. And small scale means small. And big and small are meaningless, as we've talked about, unless we have some standard of reference. For example, a big dog means nothing if we don't know the size of most dogs. So I would guess that most of your listeners have seen a wide variety of dogs and know that if I'm talking about a big dog, I might mean anywhere from a lab to a Doberman pincher. But if you've never seen the size of most dogs, you don't know. And for us in quote world, what what is large scale? Well, it depends because there's no ruler of the quote universe who says, if the motif is larger than this, it's large scale. At least I don't know of that ruler of the universe, of the quote universe. <laughs> haven't, haven't run into that yet. I think we all kind of have an idea of sort of standard wall hanging, standard bed size, and then anything much bigger than that must be large scale, and anything much smaller than that must be small scale. But, yes, I think any individual's definition of that would probably vary in the specifics. Yeah, and that's where it gets into problems when people are trying to enter quilts and shows. So... I mostly make large wall quilts. Well, a lot of times they have to go into the large bed quilt category in shows because they're larger than most wall quilts. So that's where your frame of reference really comes into consideration. And as creative people, we don't always say, oh, a bed quilt is whatever by whatever, I'm going to make my quilt that size. I've said before, I start out with an idea and then it grows into whatever size it wants to be. And I think a lot of your listeners probably work in the same manner to a certain extent at least. I, yeah, I think I, I just had a conversation with somebody the other day about you know, a, a design I was doing and how I just sort of started and put it on the wall and then I saw how big it was and figured out things from there. And and they seemed a little aghast at that because they're apparently somebody who starts out saying, okay, I need a quilt X size and this is what I'll do. So I think, you know, we approach that differently, but it's it does come down again to scale and proportion because you do look at what are you trying to achieve and what scale will best let you achieve that goal. Exactly. And proportion relates to how shapes 
interact with each other. Now, we've said that size and scale are words that are used to describe shapes in comparison with each other, but proportion is just a tiny bit different in my mind. So we might have those gradated squares again, but one might be just a little bit off, and you might need to resize it so that it looks good in proportion to the other one. And I think that proportion has more to do with the actual size in relation to the others, which is a very fine difference, <laughs> and I hope I'm explaining it well. Well, that's, that's probably another of those things we're fond in this series of giving people things that keep them up at night. So that's probably one of those things. That, what is the difference between proportion and size and scale? But we'll let them worry about that. Yeah. Let us know what you think. So the scale of a pattern, that is, its size in relation to the size of the pieces that are cut, will determine the impact of the pattern on the overall design of the quilt. So what that means is you have a block, and the pieces in the block, once they're put together in the block and then into the quilt, will determine the impact of your overall design on the viewer. And I'm thinking right now of those big block quilts. There's a very different feel when you look at them than there is to something like a 32-point Mariner's Compass with 187,000 pieces. There's a different, there's a different impact. Neither one is bad. They're just, it's a different impact. And when you're thinking about size and scale, you want to think about what impact you want to make on the viewer when you're finished with your quilt. We're going to talk about using size. Then now that we know all of this about what size and scale are, now we're going to find out what difference it makes to us as quilters, essentially, how to use it to the best advantage. Yes, and I really want to hammer on the message that you as a designer and quilt maker want to make. To your viewers. So the principle of scale in a work of art is all about the volume of the message you wish to send to your viewer. And when I say volume, I mean like sound. Like if you want to turn up the sound on your quilt radio so that it's so loud people can't avoid it, or do you want it to be very quiet so it's just in the background? The message of your quilt can do both depending, and you can use scale and size to do that. Now, we talked about human scale. The scale of a work of art in relation to the viewer, its human scale, is often one of the first considerations an artist makes. I don't know how many of you have seen David, the sculpture by Michelangelo. I haven't seen it in person, but I was told that it is human scale but slightly larger so that it makes more of an impact. And I think the same can be said with the way we sometimes use fabric in a quilt. So using some of those really large prints 
even in a small space where you can just see like there's something behind the piece next to it. It makes a different impact. And also, where will it be displayed? Are you making a quilt for the atrium of a large office building or a very small wall above your phone nook in your house? If you, if you put that phone nook quilt in that atrium, nobody's going to see it. <laughs> you need to make something that's like 35 feet by 30 feet or something so people can see it. The scale is much larger. So where it goes will inform your design. Elements in the design that are larger seem closer to us. And elements of a design that are smaller seem farther away. Elements of a design that are larger seem also more important. Conversely, elements of a design that are smaller seem less important. Now, I don't want to give you the impression that small is unimportant because it isn't. You have a mostly purple quilt. It's going to be a lot flatter until you add just a small amount of yellow in different places. Then there will be a real spark mostly because yellow is the opposite of purple. You can certainly do it with other colors like red or maybe white, depending on the what the purple looks like and what colors it was mixed with. So small is important too. Both large and small you have to use to support the message that you want to send. Scale and proportion are closely tied to emphasis and focal point. Large scale, especially large scale in proportion to other elements, makes for an obvious visual emphasis. So larger, it slams you in the face when you look at it. Now, one of the interesting things about size and scale is unusual or unexpected scale. These are arresting and attention-getting. Sheer size does impress us. I mean, if somebody sends you a really big box and it's one giant piece of fabric, aren't you impressed? I'm totally impressed. I just want the big box. <laughs> <laughs> um, magnifying something that is usually quite small can capture your attention through sheer surprise. I've been working on this premise kind of unintentionally. I realized it when I was researching this topic in my creative prompt series. So my responses usually have something, not usually, maybe often have something really big, but you can only see part of it in there. So you might want to look at um, my blog for those responses. For example, a butterfly wing that fills the entire frame gains significance as you see extraordinary detail seldom noted in everyday life. And Georgia O'Keeffe is an example of an artist that uses this unusual scale technique. And she has great paintings, so take a look. I'll put a link, I think, to her site or to a site that has a lot of her paintings when I post this on my blog. I think, um, if I recall, Ruth McDowell has also done some quilts that use that technique as well, where she basically features like a leaf you know, but it takes up the entire quilt, that just gorgeous work. 
Yeah, she does have gorgeous books. But I know all your listeners know that I love her work. <laughs> yes. Buy all of her books and take all of her classes. We've had our Ruth McDowell love fests on this podcast yeah. a few times. An unnatural contrast of scale in your quilts can also be used to achieve interesting effects. Surrealists such as Salvador Dali use wildly confused internal proportions to create to intentionally create uneasiness in the viewer. One element that is purposefully out of scale with other elements within a quilt or a work will attract the viewer's attention and become a focal point. So what this means is, if you're looking at a table that's set for dinner, and you have plates and cups and forks, we have an idea of what size all of those should be. Of course, there are some people are going to have a little coffee mug and some people have a really big tumbler because they're really thirsty. But if you're looking at that table and the fork is as big as the table, that is out of proportion to everything else. And if you're looking at it in an artwork, at least I think to myself, what the heck is that person doing? It's a surrealist, I know, but it, it makes me think, okay, this artist wanted me to really pay attention to that fork. Why should I pay attention to that fork? And maybe it's to move your eye across the work or the artist paid special attention to that fork or something else, but it will make the viewer look at the fork in a different way. And you can do that in your quilt. You can have all 10-inch blocks and then in the middle of it have one 30-inch block. And people will look at that 30-inch block. I actually really like quilts like that where the, the blocks are different sizes because they just have a lot of interest in them. It tends to draw you in more. So you pay more attention to each individual block because it's not just the same size over and over again. Exactly. Exactly. It's like we talked about with fabric. If you if you make our favorite red sawtooth star, but each red is a different fabric, there's going to be a lot more interest than if it's all the same fabric. But well, warning about exaggerating shapes, there has to be some visual continuity between the shapes. In my table example, there's continuity because we know that all those things belong together. In order to have dinner, you have to have a plate and a fork. And we're not talking about people eating in their cars or going to McDonald's drive-thru. If you're sitting down, all of those shapes, they relate to each other. So there's some visual continuity, even though they're not all circles or they're not all squares. And like I was just saying, think about the relative sizes of your pieces in a quilt, it's, it's important to vary the sizes to add interest. Now, I know Sandy's thinking about the red and white star quilt because she's thinking really loud. There's also, as we've talked about, interest in just a plain red and white star quilt with all the same fabric. And I don't think we could agree on what that was, but we both agreed that yes, you like to look at those, and there is something about them that's appealing. I think that's where you can talk about what is the design field to a certain extent, is the visual impact 
of that red and white quilt where there isn't a lot of variance when you take it as a whole it has a lot of visual impact whereas if you look at each individual block and keep looking at each individual block as an individual block it's not as interesting right and and if you take the time to look at that uh, red and white quilt you'll see variations in the blocks even if they're the same talking star the same size you'll say oh here she cut off this point just a little bit or here the background is a little different somehow or you know what I mean right or the the quilting lines are just a little you know skewed in a different direction in this way or the other way so yeah right right so one of the things that proportion has is ratio and using ratios really has to do with proportion and one thing that I'm sure people have heard about is the Fibonacci sequence it has to do with ratios of objects to one another on the design field so how big things are in relation to each other it's a powerful way to help your design evolve to its highest potential you select the width and height dimensions that promote the natural movement of your design. Select your dimensions based on a, a ratio that best suits your design. And by doing this, your design's directional flow and focus will give you a starting point to start sort through your options. So for example, there are a whole bunch of different ratios. I'm going to put them up on my blog. I'm not going to go through them all here. I'm just going to go through a couple so you kind of get the idea because if I start talking about a lot of numbers in relation to other numbers and math, your eyes are going to glaze over. But it is, And that's not a good thing considering I think a lot of these folks are listening while they're driving. So no eyes glazing over. Yes, so focus, everybody. <laughs> just for a minute on numbers. Um, Okay, so a one-to-one ratio is a perfect ratio for designs that radiate symmetrically. And if you don't remember what radiating symmetrically means, go back to a previous episode and you can, you can hear that. You can hear about that. So one-to-one ratio is a perfect ratio for designs that radiate symmetrically from a center point. If your design is 24 inches high in this ratio, it will also be 24 inches wide. Uh, a one-to-two ratio provides added width to a horizontal design. Horizontal designs are often landscapes. Not always, but an example is a landscape. Or it extends the height to a vertical design. In this ratio, the longer dimension is twice as long as the shorter dimension. If you want one dimension to be 24 inches wide, the other dimension would be double that, 48 inches. And I'm going to give a couple of examples when I put this up. So there are about six of these different ratios, and I give the the numbers. Kind of, I tried to stick with using a 24 inches as the base. But I know a lot of people have heard about the golden mean, and that's part of ratios. And it is a very easy and and wonderful 8 to 13 ratio. Okay, that math definitely would make my eyes glaze over. <laughs> yeah, or it would make you perk up. Like, 8 to 13, what the heck is that? Jay, what is that? 
so for for some crazy reason, someone figured out that the 8 to 13 ratio, and that's written 8 colon 13, is considered to be the most beautiful, pleasing dimension for art and architecture. It provides beautifully balanced dimensions because of the subtle dimensional change. The golden mean is a component of the Fibonacci sequence. So the numbers are, if you have a 24-inch high quilt, your quilt's width using this 8 to 13 ratio would be 39 inches. I was shocked. I really was. I had to go ask my son, who's a math genius. And he's like, yeah, of course it is. Okay. The math genius told you. Okay, uh, but if we don't have your son in our house. <laughs> <laughs> you can find a calculator for golden mean ratios at goldenratiocalculator.com. And, of course, I will put a link to that. I am not affiliated with that site. I make no warrants on it. But I did try it out a few times, and it seemed with some of the ratios that I found in Adventures in Design, which is where I got most of this ratio business. Um, and it seemed to work pretty well. And one example, if you just can't wait for my examples on my blog, is Pamela Mosbeck's Five Apple. And you can, I just searched for it online and, and found a picture of it. Or you can look, that's also in the Adventures in Design. So those of you who've gone out and bought all these books that I told you to can just rifle through it right now or when you're done driving. I think I've probably bought most of them myself. You've talked me into a lot of them. So um, so I think what you're encouraging me to do or, or what you're inspiring me to do is the next few um, projects I do, I'm actually going to start out with the measurements first and play around with some of these ratios and just see what happens if I make a quilt that's a 1 to 2 or a 1 to 4 ratio. And you can do them on a very small scale. You can do them around the size of a sheet of paper. You don't have to make them really big. If you just want to test it out and see how they look, just do it small. You could even do them sort of postcard size or, I mean, I think postcards and sheets of paper probably fit into this Fibonacci, I mean, the golden mean. I don't know for sure, but it seems to me that those are, pleasing kind of sizes, although they may be just so ingrained in our culture that we don't think about them. That a 4 by 6 postcard might actually be more visually pleasing if it was 4.6.999 or something. Um, That would be an interesting thing, listeners. Here's my challenge to you is measure some of your quilts and either get Jay's son to do the math for you or go into the uh, golden mean ratios calculator and or any try to figure out what the ratios are that you have done and and just kind of play around with that a little bit i'd be curious to see if people tend to do we trend towards certain ratios in our own quilt making if we're not you know sometimes we have measurements we're trying to meet if we're trying to match a certain mattress or whatever but if you're just kind of doing stuff on your own I wonder if it's like color choices, if we each tend to lean towards certain ratios. That would yeah. be an interesting study to do. It is a very interesting study. Hmm. Um, yeah, that's an interesting question. Another one to keep you up at night. <laughs> Maybe not so much. Not so much. All right, what else do we have to talk about? So I have a couple of notes for people. 
A designer can use relative sizes to give a feeling of space or depth. It's very common to many periods and styles of art. So what that means is that artists have taken this basic idea and exaggerated it by increasing the size differences. And in terms of periods and styles, they might have done different things. Like we talked about the Surrealist. That was, I want to say, early 20th century, late 19th century. Don't quote me on that. I did not look it up, which I normally would have done. And they use this unusual kind of scale, like the fork that we talked about. One thing really big that really shouldn't be that big. So some designs in different periods would have things that were larger and things that were smaller just because that was the style. Is where I'm going with this in a lot of words. It's probably the need. In past centuries, visual scale was often related to thematic importance. The size of the figures in a painting or a tapestry or something was based on their symbolic importance in the subject being presented. This is called hieratic scaling. So in those really big paintings that you see in museums that are religious paintings, usually God or Jesus or somebody, one of the saints, is really big and everybody else is much smaller. Because the painter was trying to say, hey, viewers, this guy or woman is very important. And sometimes that kind of thing had to do with the literacy of the population. Visual art was used to teach before literacy was more common as it is now. So basically, yeah, telling a story through the painting. And so by doing that, you have to kind of hit people over the head with the message. Like you said, this guy, really important. So he's really big. <laughs> right. And if people didn't read, they couldn't read the little cards that said, hey, that's God. And he's really big. Right. <laughs> well, and the term hieratic scaling, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, it's the same. It's easy to remember because it's the same root as hierarchy. Exactly. And that's why I hesitated because I'm thinking, oh, wait, did I spell this wrong? But then I realized that I remember thinking that before when I was writing it down and saying, no, this is the way it is. But yes, you're right. Hierarchy, hieratic, they're, they're in the same family. Right. Um, so private spaces are perfect for small, intricately stitched work and allow for a more intimate experience with the art. Remember our office building atrium? You don't need to take 10,000 little stitches in each square inch in that piece because nobody's going to see them. But for your foyer, people are going to look at it with their nose right next to it. So those intricately stitched parts of the design will really show and people will notice them and comment on them. The Another thing about size is when your entire field of vision is occupied by a work of art, you can't help but pay attention to it. In the summer, I went to Chicago for work, and I took some time to go to the Art Institute of Chicago, which I would highly recommend if anybody goes there, goes to Chicago. 
I didn't have that much time. I had maybe three or four hours, and I sort of ran through it and saw things that I was really interested in. And one of them was Surat Sunday afternoon on the island of La Grangeat, which is a Impressionist painting. And it's known because of its pointillist technique. So little, it's made from about a zillion, trillion, gazillion little dots. That thing is enormous. You can't tell from, I've seen it in the 100,000 book. And it is probably three times as tall as I am. Okay, so it's probably, <laughs> the people to say I have no scale. It's probably, I would say, 15 to 20 feet tall and maybe 30 feet wide. I had no idea it was that big a painting. And, yeah, like you, I've seen it in a thousand places. It is enormous. And you're standing in there, and the figures are larger than a large person. I was standing next to a guy who I'm um, almost 5'3", and I was looking at his sternum. So he's at least a head and a half taller than I am, and the figures were taller than he was in that picture. It mm. is huge. And by the way, for those of you who are listening and saying, I have no clue what painting you're talking about, use the link. I'm sure um, that Jay will have this link on her uh, blog, use the link. You know the painting. Trust me. <laughs> You've seen it. You just may not know the name of it. So, it, I think it's sometimes called Sunday in the Park with, with George. Right. And the the painter is George Pierre Farrat. I mean, you can't... Going to museums is one of the best things that you can do as an artist. Even if it's your local museum that doesn't have impressionist works or just seeing how they anybody does painting it will inform your own work i there are a whole bunch of galleries near my office and sometimes i'll just go there on my lunch hour and look at what those people have done in their paintings and different sculptures and other kinds of art it it really can help you be a better quilt maker, a better designer. And I think we tend to think of that in terms of color and, and subject maybe. I think here what we're suggesting is also look at how various artists of any kind, whether it be painting or sculpture or, or you know whatever, that how they also use scale and size and these ratios so that you can get a sense of how can you more effectively use those the scale and size as well. Yeah, and I mean, this is neither here nor there, because if you have to make a really big piece, you just have to make it. I have no idea how he painted the top of that, and how the heck did he get it out of his studio? (laughs) (laughs) I've got to read more about the particulars of it, because I've made really large quilts. They're not as large as this painting, by any means, and they are just a pain. Once you're done with them, they're a pain to quilt. They're a pain to store. They're a pain to hang because they're so heavy. So, well, like you said, you can fold it up and get it out of a doorway. How do you get a 15 by 30 foot painting out of a doorway? <laughs> I know. I know. Huh. So on a lot of levels, scale and size have an impact. 
know, from, wow, those figures are really big, to, wow, how did he get that out of his studio? And all of that is part of this whole experience of design, I think. Right. Now, you had referenced earlier something called the Fibonacci sequence, and that's something I hear frequently. You know, I hear that term. I've never been 100% positive. What is the Fibonacci sequence? Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, and I made a special effort because I was in the same boat that you were in to kind of give more information. So each successive number in the Fibonacci sequence is the sum of the two previous numbers. So it begins 0, and then 1, and then 1 again, and then 2, and then 3, 5, 8, 13, 21, 34, 55, 89, 144. I'm not sure why I put 1 down twice. I might have made a mistake there, but I'll check. So if you add up 1 and 2, which are the first part of the sequence, you get 3. And then if you add up 2 and 3, you get 5. So the sum is the two numbers equal the next number in the sequence. You can use large or small sections of the sequence to determine the dimensions of elements within a design. And the Fibonacci sequence has a strong relationship between mathematics, nature, and art. Apparently, the sequence shows up in different parts of nature. Carol Breyer Fallard has a quilt called Fibonacci Garden that's an example. And when I'm talking about the Fibonacci sequence, I'm talking more about the elements on your design field, so your squares or your circles or your leaves, rather than the size of the design field. Before, we were talking about ratios, and now with Fibonacci sequence, we're talking about what's on your design field. And that's pretty much all I have for you today. Okay, and as always, of course, you will put all of this on your blog with all sorts of wonderful links. So listeners, do be sure you go visit Jay's blog. Um, and it may lead you to down bunny trails to... Um, study some of these details a little bit more closely. Um, I'm finding myself thinking, I want to look into that Fibonacci sequence a little bit more in terms in terms of where it shows up in nature. I'd be curious about that. Um, and like I said, playing with ratios a little bit more too. Yeah, I think they're all tools that we can use in our work. Well, thank you once again, Jay. I really appreciate you doing all of the work that you put into each one of these episodes. It's really phenomenal. So thanks so much for doing that. Oh, you're welcome. It was fun. All right. And um, we don't know yet what our next episode will be or when it will be. <laughs> and at this point, it may not be until after the holidays as we each get busier, but they are still coming. Don't despair. <laughs> all right. Thank you again, Jay. I appreciate it. Have a great day, Sandy. All right, you too. Bye-bye. Bye. Quilting for the Rest of Us is dedicated to Shirley. Love you, Mom. Thanks.